the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. We all, certainly during this course of time that we have been sheltering in place, have had a lot of time for self-thought, some introspection, self-evaluation, which quite frankly, coming off of the heels of Easter is not a bad thing at all. We should always pause for a moment to take of account where we stand in our relationships, both along the horizontal plane of the cross as well as the vertical plane of the cross in our relationship with God and what all of that means, particularly at a time like this when we as believers can rely upon our faith for comfort while the rest of the world, well, Scripture even talks about a time when men's hearts would fail within for fear. Now, whether or not we're necessarily deep into that timeline from an eschatological standpoint, well, that perhaps is open to debate. But to be sure, there is a very practical and biblical response and understanding that we can and should bring to the current pandemic. Joining me now with some insights is author and founder of the Denison Forum, Dr. Jim Denison. He also is the author of The Daily Article, which helps guide readers through today's news from a biblical standpoint. And Dr. Dennison, great to have you back on the program. Greg, I'm delighted to be with you today, my friend. Thank you for the privilege. It's perhaps by no mistake that we have gone through the peak of this illness across America and the globe right at the time of the Lenten season and certainly Easter. And I think it's a helpful reminder of not just the fragility of life, but also the sense of urgency. And while none of us, to be sure, even Christ himself knows the day or the hour precisely, we know to a certainty that he's coming, he's coming soon, and as I often say on my program, he's a, he's a day closer to coming today than he was just yesterday. Give us some insights in terms of first helping to put into perspective as people continue to struggle with the number of illnesses, the staggering number of deaths, even here at home in America, where we're approaching upwards of 50,000 people who have lost their lives to this tragic illness. And we struggle to answer for ourselves, and we struggle to answer for others. The question, where is God in the midst of all this? Yeah, thank you, Craig. First of all, that is the question, isn't it? Jesus from the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he could ask that question, we can ask that question. If we're up against something like this, it seems to violate his character, because we know God is all-knowing. He therefore knew about this pandemic before we did. He's all-loving, so you would think he would not want us to have to suffer this. He's all-powerful. We see him heal all through Scripture, so we would think that he could heal this. He could even remove this pandemic if he wished to do so. So why doesn't he? That's the challenge that Christians uniquely face. Other world religions don't really affirm the, the all-knowingness, the all-lovingness, the all-powerfulness of God to the degree that we do. And so as we're doing all of this, really, we're looking not so much for the explanation as we are looking for biblical responses to this. One fact is that as we hurt, God hurts. 
as we suffer, God suffers. He grieves as we grieve. He goes through this with us. Jesus weeps at the grave of Lazarus and still weeps at graves graves today. A second biblical fact is that we live in a fallen world. We wouldn't be having this conversation in the Garden of Eden. It's because of the fall of, of, as you know, the fall of humanity that Romans 8 says that creation has fallen, and that's why we deal with diseases and disasters. That's why there was an earthquake in Los Angeles today. That's why there were uh, tornadoes last week in the South, because we live in a, in a broken and fallen world. But third, we know that God redeems all he allows. He uses for greater good what he allows, and we're just trusting him in that. We're trusting that he will redeem this in ways that that will use this to his glory and our good. And then finally, we ask, how do we join that? How do we volunteer? Let's turn from the speculative to the practical and ask, how can I make a difference now? What can I do about this that will reach out to my neighbor and serve my Lord in a way that will be practical in this time? You know, going through experiences like this, both individually and and collectively as a church and as a nation, um, it it probably, from a silver lining viewpoint, um, is helpful for us to be reminded of not just the fragility of life, but our own sense of mortality, and that that relationship that we have with God, or lack thereof, is something that all of us need to ponder and consider. For those that are in that relationship, whether or not it's exactly where God wants us to be, and if we're not in that relationship, to ask ourselves the question, what kind of an answer do I need to give? Do I expect to someday give to God for the life that He has given me? So I suppose in one regard, there can be aspects of the tragedy of all of the sickness and loss of life that we've seen across America and the globe as an opportunity for us to be reminded that there are some important things that maybe getting caught up in the working world of materialism, making more money and and all that we do that tends to distract us, that when it comes back front and center, it is really about the centrality of Christ in our life and our relationship with God. It absolutely is, Craig, and that's what this is showing us on a level that's unprecedented in our lifetime. Before the 20th century, it really was the case that medical practice was primarily about alleviating suffering, but there was not much that could be done to elongate life such as we have seen in our generation. And now we've gotten to this place where we won't even speak of death. We won't even use the phrase, he died. We'll speak of passing on or moving on or some such as that. We don't see bodies at funerals anymore. In fact, quite often we don't have funerals. We have memorial services. Quite often we're we're unwilling even to consider the fact that this is, that this, that mortality is real for us. Well, this virus changes all that. I work as a resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White. I was on a conference call with our board just yesterday, and I can tell you that even though we have the finest medical minds in the world working on this, we certainly don't have a vaccine. We don't even have medical treatments for this disease right now. Anybody can get it. Anybody can be infectious, even if they're asymptomatic. This is a reminder of our mortality on a level unprecedented in our lifetime. Now, it doesn't change morality. We're no more mortal now than we were two months ago, but we realize that now. So we're seeing people turn to God in unprecedented numbers. A quick example, I know of a pastor at a church in California that had 8,000 people typically on their online worship service before the pandemic. On Easter, they had 1.3 million people watching their online service. God is using this and the hunger for for help and for hope and the fact of mortality to turn people to him in unprecedented numbers. And it's an interesting dichotomy, Dr. Dennison, because on one hand, and you pointed to this a moment ago, that we tend to, in this current um, moment in time, to sort of downplay 
um, to the point of nullification, uh, the severity of death. As you say, we, we, we tend to downplay it in funeral services. Uh, certainly, if anything, the abortion statistics across America mm-hmm. have demonstrated just far how far disconnected we have come from what the, the implications and, and the true meaning of death really is. And yet, on the other hand, the dichotomy is that we've created a culture of death where violence reigns and everything from video games to what masquerades as entertainment, both on television, movies, the Internet. It seems that everywhere we turn, violence is the means of settling disputes. And we've seen this played out in our culture with everything from acts of terrorism to gun violence. And it's almost as if we really have completely attempted to redefine what death is. Now, all of a sudden, we're faced before us that this isn't a game. This isn't entertainment. This isn't a pastime for young children. This is real serious business with very serious consequences. That's exactly right. And what we've done to this point, as you said, is we've caricatured death. Death is what other people experience. It's not what I experience, whether it's abortion, and that's not a child that we're putting to death. That is an unformed body, or that is a growth, or some such as that. All the way to euthanasia, where we're thinking about fighting for the rights of others to die, but that doesn't, and that doesn't involve me. That's their decision. That's their choice. We push that off. We make death a video game. Well, now we're seeing in New York City that they're talking about using city parks to bury bodies because they've run out of space in cemeteries. We're talking about uh, ways of doing morgue that we've never considered before, even portable boards, and then even running out of space there. We're talking to ER doctors in New York that are describing the front lines of this in ways to make us understand the reality of death. And again, it's not that God caused this, but that's one of the ways God wants to redeem it, is by showing us that death is real, and it comes for us all. It's appointed unto all men once to die, and then the judgment. We're visiting today with Dr. Jim Dennison. He is author and founder of the Dennison Forum. Information available on the web at denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. In addition, he's also senior fellow with the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative and serves as senior fellow for global studies at Dallas Baptist University's Institute for Global Engagement. We'll take this brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our visit today with best-selling author Dr. Jim Dennison. He, of course, is the author and founder of the Dennison Forum and joins us as we talk about not just the Bible and what it has to reveal concerning the current pandemic crisis we're involved with from an eschatological standpoint, but also an analysis of where we as the church should be responding individually in our own relationship with the Lord, and then collectively as the body of believers. And I want to spend some time talking about that for a moment, Dr. Dennison, because we have seen in recent headline news cases in a number of communities across the United States where under the current shelter-in-place regulations, and of course many states that have instituted um, restrictions on gatherings of more than 50 people or gatherings more than 10, that obviously has a very negative impact on the church's ability to meet. Um, And yet, as you referred to a moment ago with the church saying, hey, if we can't gather, let's use the power of all of the wonderful 
tools we have available to us through technology in order to reach people and and saw an exponential fantastic um, number of people that participated in a Easter worship service that otherwise might not have been exposed to the gospel nor attended under quote-unquote normal circumstances. And yet I have to wonder, as we've read stories about churches that have protested, have gathered together contrary to the best advice from medical experts and and law enforcement, putting congregations at risk and almost seeming to suggest that if we don't gather somehow in the middle of this crisis, we are as the church going to lose our First Amendment rights. And we've suddenly turned this into not a question about people that are dying and going into eternity without Christ, but the church acting as if this is all about us, all about our rights. What are your thoughts and observations concerning what we see is emerging? And again, thank goodness that it's not universal across the country, but we've seen emerging some examples of this that seems to want to make this current crisis about us as opposed to about others. I'm worried about it on two levels, Craig. First of all, on the merits. It's not an attack on religious liberty unless this is specifically directed at religious people, and it's not. These uh, gathering uh, requirements, these shelter-at-place requirements, relate to all gatherings, whether it's schools, whether it's civic clubs, whether it's outside organizations. This is nothing specifically designed against churches. And so for that reason, it can't be understood as religious liberty issues. It's really the kind of time where Christians have the opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves, where we have the opportunity to demonstrate that we're being the good citizens, that Romans 13 calls us to be. It's the opposite of believing that we're being martyred in some unusual way. I've been to Cuba more than 10 times over the years, and I can talk about actual persecution against believers there. We can talk about believers that are risking their lives and their children and their future to stand up for Jesus. That's not the situation. On a second level, what really concerns me about this is the way we could be prejudicing the larger culture against our message and against our religious liberty. We can be poisoning the environment if they say, okay, that's what all Christians believe. All Christians think that it's all about them. All Christians think that gathering for worship is more important than risking the lives, especially of those that are at risk that come. We can be painted with that broad brush. The media tends to do that anyway. They tend to look at extreme examples as though they're representing all of us. And I'm concerned about us poisoning the environment relative to religious liberty in years to come because of the way that we could be turning the culture against us right now. It's critical that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we do so as good citizens, and in so doing, we glorify our Lord. And I have to wonder at the same token, if we don't do a disservice, as I think you're suggesting, to the cause of Christ, when we try to amplify our own sense of um, righteous indignation, and I use that in quotes here, Dr. Dennison, our own sense of righteous indignation over what we perceive to be a restriction of our own religious liberties at a time when really and truly there are people who die daily because they name Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have suffered not just uh, governmental persecution, but institutional and cultural persecution. To be a believer in a place like Iran, for example, today, you very much literally take your own life into your own hands when you name Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's true for many parts of the the sort of extreme end of the Islamic world. And then, too, we see examples of uh, institutionalized and governmental persecution of believers in countries like North Korea, where if you're caught with a Bible, it's a three-year prison sentence for you and two generations of your family. When Jesus talks about suffering and dying for his namesake, I, I, I'm, I'm supposing that 
this is what he's talking about, not the example of a church who's upset because local authorities have said you might spread the disease to people in the community and to vulnerable individuals within your own congregation. So we ask that you please don't gather, or if you're going to gather, you have to be six feet apart, no more than 50. I, I'm just I'm just thinking here that there's a there's an extreme disservice that we're doing not only to, to the gospel, but, but, but the shaming, um, in, in a sense, in relationship to what real persecution looks like. I mean, if, if we're this fragile right now, God help the church when we really face persecution. Absolutely right. When I've been to Cuba and seen what they're up against, I come back, and I really can't even call us persecuted. It's really hard to even use the same word, isn't it? When I've been in China, and I've met people that are risking everything to meet in underground, unauthorized churches, to smuggle Bibles, to smuggle discipleship materials, and, and recognizing the cost that's in front of them in doing that, I come back, it's really tough to feel persecuted in America today. I do understand on some level, I guess, the logic, kind of this hedge around the law sort of an idea, that if we yield here, next we'll be yielding there, next we'll be yielding there camel of the nose in the tent sort of an idea. Slippery slope, yeah. Yeah, slippery slope. But I can promise you, people like Kelly Shackelford, organizations by, like like uh, that are on the forefronts of religious liberty, they're telling us this is not a religious liberty issue. That are in fact recently, he and Al Mohler had a I thought a phenomenal article in Washington Post making that very point. And Kelly Shackelford has argued religious liberty cases again at the Supreme Court. He's been seen one of the top lawyers in Texas for years, and he's saying this is not that slippery slope. And if we ever get there, we'll be the first to tell you, and we'll stand up and we'll speak against. Now there are some one-off cases. There was a church I read about where uh, I think it was the local mayor that would let them meet in their cars on their uh, church campus to watch a worship service through the windshield. That was seen as religious discrimination, and when there was protest made, they immediately reversed themselves. So I'm certainly not here to say that every magistrate in every place is doing this properly, but we are here to say that from President Trump on down, the intention is not to persecute Christians. The intention, quite frankly, is to keep Christians from gathering together in a way that you could say persecutes others relative to transmission of a deadly virus, against which, again, we have no antidotes right now, we have no vaccines now. So loving our neighbors is how we love our Lord. And I'm thinking in, in our closing moments together that part of this ought to be perhaps the, the accepting and, and, and the comprehending of maybe a message that God is trying to send us, and that is that as much as we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves when it's possible from a, from a safety standpoint, but that this is not necessarily the time with so many people that are so fearful and the vulnerability that people are feeling right now, that this is not the ch- time for the church to be looking in, but rather to be looking out. I'm reminded of that passage of Scripture that, under normal times, calls upon the church to, go quote, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And as much as maybe the, the physical, literal going out might be hampered right now, there are so many opportunities before the body of Christ for people. If you look or struggle with a, an example or an opportunity to, to share your faith with somebody and you've been rejected before, watch now how people will, with a greater sense, I think, of openness, be eager to hear what makes you different, why you're not panicking, why you're not worried, in whom or what have you put your reliance to get through this terrible time. What a golden opportunity that the church can see this as the potential opportunity for a great harvest. 
Absolutely. One of my favorite stories about John Wesley is about that time. I know you know the story. He was on the ship. They're crossing the ocean. A horrific storm comes up. Everybody is crying out in fear. They're terrified for their lives, except a group of Moravian brethren who keep worshiping. They keep trusting. They keep praying with incredible calm, incredible peace. And afterwards, Wesley and others had to know from them, how were you able to do this? How were you able to withstand this life-threatening storm with such peace? And it was the proclamation of the gospel that was them explaining, well, our peace is in our Lord. We're ready to be with our Lord. If we die here, we live there. This is one step closer to eternity. It was that witness that, according to John Wesley, was enormously influential in turning his own heart to Jesus. And we know the results of that. You don't know the next John Wesley you might be impacting by your faithful witness during a difficult, fearful time. That's planting seeds you'll never, or trees you'll never sit under. That's planting the seed of the gospel. That's using, that's reframing this crisis as an opportunity for Jesus. And that's the mindset I believe he wants us to have. We know in whom we have believed and are persuaded that he is able. And I think that is not only a tremendous comfort to the church today, but also ought to therefore motivate us to be about the master's business for such a time as this. And while there may be a different way in which we have to engage in the going out into the highways and byways, this can be, while perhaps the world's darkest hour, the greatest hour for the body of Christ. Dr. James Dennison, we appreciate so much the time and the insights. More information available regarding the Dennison Forum, simply go online to denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. Dr. Dennison, thanks again so much for being with us today. Great, what a privilege to do this with you. God bless you and yours. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting research that's out that I suspect if you look at the world around us here in the United States and read the headlines with any frequency, you'd probably see that, uh, yeah, this, this sort of rings true, at least um, spiritually speaking. Um, we take an examination of what's going on within the evangelical church today, and um, George Barna, of course, who's done a wonderful job down through the years documenting trends within uh, the Christian world in general and, and evangelicalism in specific down through the years. Um, more recently, a uh, one of his surveys coming out that demonstrates, and this ought to set all of us back on our heels that identify as evangelicals, that less than five of us um, in a typical church are personally involved with evangelism. And a typical church, by the way, that identifies as evangelical in nature, <laughs> less than 2% of their budget is dedicated to, you guessed it, evangelism. So when you take the evangel out of evangelical or evangelism, what are you left with? And what about the mandate to the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's time for some re-examination as to whether or not we are engaged in the kind of reach that we ought to be. My uh, guest here in this segment of the program uh, probably grows weary of being introduced as the gentleman who's the president of the organization that runs the Christian radio station in Quito, Ecuador. But the irony, of course, is that um, given the 80-plus year incredible outreach that this ministry has had uh, through radio and other means, uh, that's probably not a bad thing to be referenced to. He is Wayne Pedersen. He is president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB, and he's got a new book of the same title, Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And Wayne, great to have you on the program. 
Well, thanks, Greg. It's a privilege to be on with you on, on uh, this afternoon and uh, share a little bit about what God is doing in extraordinary ways around the world with the whole global shift from uh, the, the real evangelism and missions that has shifted to the global south. And the greatest growth of the Church today is not in Europe and North America, but in places like South America, Asia, and Africa. And it's amazing, too, and maybe a big wake-up call for those of us here in in the Christian West, whether we're talking about Europe or or North America, that we kind of think that uh, we're sort of the standard-bearer, the the paradigm-setter for um, what evangelicalism or evangelism rather ought to look like. And, 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 And certainly while, you know, we've played a significant role down through the years, God has been doing some exciting things in some exciting ways that are maybe perhaps by, uh, well, by Western standards, a little bit out of the norm, and yet very much within his norm. Well, it was 100 years ago that 90% of uh, followers of Jesus lived in North America or Europe, and those numbers have almost reversed in the last 100 years, where now about 70% of believers live outside of the North America and Europe, uh, they're in Africa, where the Church is growing uh, fantastically, in Asia, in Latin America. And now many of those countries are sending missionaries back to North America to some of the immigrants that have come into our country from these other countries. And uh, the top mission-sending country in the world is Brazil. The second most uh, mission-sending country is Korea. So we're seeing kind of the reverse flow of missionary activity coming back to this country, And as our country becomes more and more secular and materialistic, we're seeing uh, God working in in previously unreached places of the world. Let's talk about how that paradigm shift has taken place, and and most notably, perhaps, what we as the Church in America um, and and the West can learn from it. Uh, I mean, there's always kind of been a, a pattern to the way we have engaged in outreach and evangelism. I think, for example, of, of some of the history of HCJB and kind of taking the, the approach of going into all the world and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the case of this, using radio as a means to most effectively across those borders and accomplish all of that. And yet today, even as much as we've seen a changing face of what evangelical Christianity looks like around the globe, even the ministry of, um, well, now Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB, that's even changed a bit too, hasn't it? Well, our strategy is much different where uh, we used to be very Ecuador-centric, Quito-centric, and we brought missionaries in from all over the world to go to Quito and then use shortwave broadcasting to send the message to places like uh, Europe, Russia, Africa, Asia. Today, the strategy is much more working with local partners, training indigenous people that know the language and know the culture. Most everything we do at Reach Beyond today is through a local partner. And because they're already there and they can live on $100 a month, which is the average salary, and because they already know the language and the culture, they don't have to go to language school. They don't have to take 10 years to learn the culture. And with the right equipment and the right training, uh, they can reach their peers with the gospel of Christ. Even as we speak, we have a team over in the most populous Muslim country in the world, in Indonesia, and they're training about 28 young media professionals on how to own and run and manage a radio station. And when we leave, those 28 new, newly trained leaders will be uh, reaching their countrymen, and they're seeing those stations are seeing an average of three to five people a day come to Christ at each of their stations. 
and churches are being planted throughout Indonesia, and former Muslims are leading other Muslims to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, Imams are uh, becoming followers of Jesus and teaching about Jesus in the mosque, and it's an amazing thing that is happening as Christianity is spreading rapidly into these former countries that were strongholds for other false religions. Well, and as you indicate, Wayne, I mean, while the message is the same, it is timeless of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his um, substitutionary work on the cross on behalf of my, mankind that we might be reconciled unto the Father. Um, that That has never changed. But the methodology uh, is changing. And I, and I would wonder what the likes of a Hudson Taylor, uh, who was so uh, responsible in the 1800s for bringing the gospel to China, uh, would think of the indigenous church in China today that is largely all run by nationals. I mean, we know that there are certainly no, uh, no missionary schools there. There are no seminaries there. There are, uh, at least of, of the ones that are above ground, the legal ones, the three self-church movement is all controlled by the government, and yet here you are with a nation that is largely devoid of much of the way that we do, quote-unquote, church in the West. It's one of the fastest-growing churches on planet Earth, and it's all being done at the hands of nationals. Isn't it interesting, Craig, how, uh, I mean, it's always been true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and some of the fastest-growing spread of Christianity in the world are are in countries where there is persecution. And uh, one outstanding example is Iran, where uh, 25 years ago they could identify only about 400 believers. And today, and largely through social media, using uh, Skype and texting and Facebook and other means, plus uh, broadcasting the gospel from outside of the country with medium wave, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in Iran is the fastest-growing Christian country in the world, percentage-wise. And some of the stand countries where there's heavy persecution, the Church is uh, multiplying in fantastic ways. So persecution doesn't seem to stop the growth of the Church. In fact, it's just the opposite, where there is opposition in places. uh, We're working in a place like Nepal, which uh, six years ago was a Hindu-controlled government, and the Maoists came in and overthrew that government, established a democratic republic, and now we're able to go in and start radio stations and health clinics in a country that was formerly completely closed to the gospel. So these are amazing days we're living in today, and God has given us these amazing media tools, uh, not only radio, but satellite and Internet and social media, with which we can share Christ in some of the most uh, formerly closed places of the world. And, of course, this all gives an underlying lesson, perhaps, uh, a wake-up call of sorts to the Church in the West um, for ourselves and the enormous amount of missions work that we have to do, uh, not necessarily overseas, while that's certainly um, on the the to-do list, um, more and more so right here at home. I'll never forget years ago uh, running into a group of um, Christians that uh, were in China. And uh, in the course of conversation, asked them what uh, they felt the Lord had called them to do. And uh, without exception, uh, each and every one of these um, young college-age individuals indicated that they felt God had called them to be missionaries to the United States. Uh, What an amazing turn of events where in the 1800s here, uh, um, the likes of Hudson Taylor were traveling to China, bring the gospel message. And now um, the very fruit of his labor, 100 and something years later, 
now feels burdened to turn around and come to the United States to bring the gospel message here. One of the things that uh, we strive to do at Reach Beyond, and that's kind of the the whole underlying theory of the book, Reach Beyond Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ, is to call the Church of Jesus Christ in North America to a stronger commitment to reach the unreached. Uh, I was involved, uh, as you may know, uh, Craig, in Christian radio for many, many years in this uh, country, until uh, God called me to this work six years ago, and the verse God used was Romans 15:20, where Paul said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where the name of Christ is not known. So in our book, we have what we're calling our mission manifesto, and it's a call to action to ourselves and to the Church in this country. Uh, for example, we state, we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ, when we can share the good news that transforms them through the media they use. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ dies suffer from pain and poverty, when we can help restore them in his name. And we say we refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people when common sense says protect yourself and stay in your comfort zone. We put on the armor of God and storm the gates of hell for the sake of the unreached, if that's what's required. Our conversation today with Wayne Peterson, we're talking about um, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mandate here in the 21st century to go into all the world, and um, how in many respects, while the message clearly remains the same, the methodology is changing. What are some of the lessons that we can learn here at home in America? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Uh, Wayne Peterson is with us today. He is president of Reach Beyond. You know the ministry um, commonly as um, HCJB, located in Quito, Ecuador. Of course, this ministry has been global and impacting the world for Christ for the better part of 80-plus-something oh, years now. Wayne has written a new book called Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And as we were articulating prior to the break, while clearly the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ, remains the same, the methodology of how that message is communicated and delivered has changed uh, quite significantly. And and the interesting thing is we've seen this paradigm shift, uh, Wayne, in the mission field, where now really it's largely the, the tremendous success of nationals uh, that are leading to this almost um, uh, wildfire of of uh, growth of the church in, in many parts of the world, there might be some important lessons that we here in the West can draw from what we're seeing happening in, in places like Central and South America, Asia, China, elsewhere. Well, absolutely, and uh, we are learning from our friends in places like Asia, Africa, and South America. In some ways, they put us to shame with their boldness uh, in parts of North Africa where we work and help deliver programs uh, through uh, satellite. Uh, we have local partners on the ground that work below the radar, and we don't identify them in any way. Often we disguise their voices. But if I were there, I would be praying like mad for protection. You know what they pray for, Craig? They pray for boldness, mm. not safety. And we're so safety conscious in this country, but in that part of the world, they, they just pray, Lord, make us bold in our witness, and they don't take any unnecessary chances. But uh, last year we had one of our radio uh, producers that uh, was turned into the authorities. They arrested him, put him in jail. 
uh, in jail. Somebody recognized his voice from the radio broadcast and beat him because he was a follower of Jesus. And through a series of miracles, he was released in a couple of months and returned to his family. Uh, the stories don't always end that way. We know that there are people that are arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed because they follow Jesus. Uh, one of our uh, radio partners in that part of the world was listening to one of our broadcasts uh, on satellite, and his father discovered that he was uh, listening and on the website and said, Son, do you really believe this stuff? And he says, Yes, Father, I do. He didn't deny it. He just said, Yes, I believe it. And he beat his son, threw him out of the house uh, with only what he had on his back. And that young man, uh, going through the streets half-naked, at night, uh, no home, no family. There was a light on in a house, and in a country that's less than 1% Christian, knocked at the door, and a Christian family took him in and uh, healed his wounds and fed him and clothed him and got him into school. Today, this young man is producing programs for us in the Arabic language and reaching his countrymen. I mentioned earlier, uh, we often digitally disguise the voices of those so they won't be recognized. We offer to disguise his voice, and he says, no, I've already been beaten for following Jesus. You can let my voice go out as it is. So th this is why I think we can learn something. You know, we have social persecution in this country, and we feel we're discriminated against, and that's true. However, in many parts of the world, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus can cost you your family, your job, or even your life. Yeah, ironically, it is more of a picture of what the first century church looked like um, than certainly anything that we've known of recent years. And, and, and maybe perhaps that sense of of purpose that is motivated by uh, results, motivated by a passion for Christ and a desire to serve Him above, above all else, um, is exactly what the Lord wants of us in, in these uh, these times when uh, there's a better part of, what, almost two and a half billion people that have yet to hear the gospel message. And we know that while certainly a lot of them lie in that, that all-critical 1040 window, uh, growing numbers of them are right here at home, right here as our next-door neighbors in North America, aren't they? Well, and that's the other thing we can learn uh, in this country, because the mission field is now coming to us. And many of the immigrants that are coming to this country, I don't know how you feel about the immigration issue, but many are coming, and they are interested in our culture. Many are coming from Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and finding Christ in this country because they're interested in the culture. Many that are coming are already believers and are starting churches, and they have come to this country to escape persecution or to have a better life and starting churches and reaching other immigrants with the gospel. So uh, I don't think uh, the, the story is over for the United States of America. I think we're going to see a spiritual harvest come here as uh, the rest of the world reaches out to our very materialistic, hedonistic, secular society in this country. Yeah, and as you point out, the mission field is literally coming to us, and the amazing thing is that then God can use this as these people influence their friends um, and family members back home, wherever their nation of origin might be, and we see the continuing cycle of the outreach of the gospel. Uh, great book, and if you'd like to get more information about it, um, you can do so by going to reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Take a moment, if you would, Wayne, as our time winds down together, and tell us a bit about the I Refuse campaign. 
Well, the, uh, I referred to that a bit earlier. The I Refuse is our mission manifesto. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to read that manifesto. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points. And we're looking for 100,000 followers of Jesus that will go online and sign that manifesto. And the I Refuse campaign is we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ when we can share the good news that transform them. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ dies suffer in pain and poverty when we can help restore them in his name. We refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people. We'll put on the armor of God and pray for the unreached uh, so that more may come to know Jesus. And if you want to know more about the I Refuse, this is a call to the Church in America to take a stand to share the good news with the dark places around the world. And we invite many of your listeners to your show, Craig, that they would go online and sign this manifesto and make that commitment to reach the unreached around the world and even across the street. And again, information available on the web at reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Wayne's new book, by the way, of a similar title. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, through Amazon.com, and of course, through reachbeyond.org. Wayne Pedersen, president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB. Thank you for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Music